I'll be the difference. Difference they need me to be. Difference I'm needing to see. My follow, I'm taking the lead. I'll be the difference. Difference they need me to be. Difference they need me to see. My follow, I'm taking the lead. I'll be the difference. Hi, everyone. My name is Vanessa Richardson, and I'm Executive Director of California Groundbreakers here in Sacramento. This is the second of our podcasts about George Floyd's death on Memorial Day and what has happened since then, particularly here in California. Protests and demonstrations that are leading to in-depth conversations, proposed legislation, and ideally, big improvements in racial justice and equality and systemic change. And many of the demonstrations against police brutality and for systemic change have been led by young people. Many of them are still in grade school and are college, but are quickly showing their chops as leaders who can speak out and speak specifically about how they want things to change. And they are indeed being heard, it seems like, by quote-unquote seasoned, quote-unquote veteran decision makers who have been working on making systemic change for most of their careers or all of their careers. So our first podcast that we did about what systemic change will look like here in California, we had a conversation about police reform with the former police chief and now police force consultant Bob Harrison, and also with Stevante Clark, a young activist and brother to the late Stefan Clark, whose death at the hands of police led to a groundbreaking law in California passed last year that's called Stefan Clark's Law, and that placed new limits on the police use of force. So for this podcast, we're going to be looking at some proposed laws on racial justice and equality that the state legislature will be voting on, and also that we California voters will be voting on on the November ballot. And again, here we have a young leader and a veteran leader here to talk with us and each other about these proposed laws, what they think about those laws, where they may agree and disagree about these proposed laws' impacts, and overall, how they think systemic change can happen and should happen here in California. So first, let me introduce Xavier Brown. He is an Oakland native who just finished his first year of college at UCLA, although I think probably the last couple of months of college were done remotely back at Oakland. And for that question that a lot of college students get asked, so what did you do over the summer? Xavier has a great answer. He, along with three of his friends, organized a rally against law enforcement brutality in Oakland that got 15,000 people to come out onto the streets to protest. That's one of the largest demonstrations so far this year in Oakland and probably the Bay Area. And since then, the four friends have marched together in other demonstrations and spoken to city leaders. And recently, I read that Xavier attended an online meeting of the Oakland Police Commission, and he called on the city's police department to be defunded and the money to be directed toward schools and social services. So I'm going to ask him about that, what the results were. Joining us too is Kevin McCarty. He's California State Assembly member representing the 7th District, which includes the city of Sacramento, and that's where California Groundbreakers is based. He is a member of the California Legislative Black Caucus, which recently held a live stream press conference that was after the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter demonstrations that happened right after. And that's where Kevin laid out a list of proposals that he and his colleagues say could help increase equity for California's black residents and communities. And they include bills dealing with police oversight, parole, probation reforms, reparations, affirmative action, so we'll be talking about those bills, or at least a few of them, here today. So welcome to you both, gentlemen. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. But, but thank you for having me. So my first two questions, I have one for each of you. A little bit about your background and maybe how your backgrounds led you to what you're working on this summer. So first up, question, uh, the first question I have is for you, Xavier. You're just age 19. And like I said at the top, you and your friends organized a march for police reform. You got 15,000 people to show up. 
uh, it sounded like that turned into an idea that was exchanged uh, through phone calls, through text. It turned into one of the largest demonstrations. So I was wondering, you know, and give, if you could give us an overview about that experience and, and working on it, how that happened, how it may have shaped you in terms of your thoughts, uh, your opinions on activism, speaking out, and maybe even how it's shaping your you know, plans that you want to do for this summer and, and down the road. Yeah. Um, so pretty much how it happened is Akil, um texted me on a Tuesday night. And he said, um, X, uh, my friends, uh, uh, call me, um, X, um, and he said, X, uh, I'm reaching out to you cause I see you as a leader. Um, I'm doing a, a, a march. I've had enough and I have the flyer and guidelines ready and I want you to be a part of it. And then I and immediately I said, "Let's uh, do it." Simply because when I I couldn't even watch the whole George Floyd um, a video, and what it showed to me is that no matter what you do, as a black man or as a black a person in this country, you can be killed, even if you are not resisting arrest you can still be um, killed. And that got me extremely mad. Um, so from there, we uh, posted the flyer on uh, social media. We um, uh, shared it with a lot of our friends and family. And um, I think the reason why I gained so much attention is because a lot of other people were also mad. You know what I mean? And it was like the, it was it was the first pro it was the first protest planned in Oakland or it, honestly from what I know in the Bay Area because a lot of the <clears throat> a, a lot of the protests that were um, in the Bay Area happened after the one on June first or happened like after we set out that um, a flyer so um, yeah. I think that that's the reason why it uh, garnered so much attention. And in terms of what it looked like behind the scenes, which is a lot of organizations reaching out, we had to make sure that we, that we kept in control of what we wanted to uh, uh, portray. Because a lot of organizations were trying to push their own um, ag ag agendas onto us. And we had to make sure that, you know, we um, did what we wanted to do if that makes sense um in terms of like uh how how i see activism after this i've i i i see it as the same growing up i've always seen activism and protesting as such a brave and courageous choice you know and um I honestly feel like as a as a black a person in this country I have to protest because without protesting I would not have the rights that I have now and I um I would not be able to work towards a better future for um the youth that are going to come after me so I feel like it's a need to um 
protest simply for humanity. You, you know what I mean? Like, this is a question of humanity. So, yeah. Okay. Kevin, I have a question for you, too, uh, along a similar vein. You know, you're growing up in your childhood. You, you have a black father. And I think I was listening to a podcast or a news um, uh, broadcast that you did recently, again, after uh, George Floyd's death, um, about growing up um, in your childhood and uh, racism. Um, and I was wondering if, you know, if you or your other family members experience racism, um, if so, how did that shape you personally and professionally? And did that lead you to where you are now in legislature and the caucus and, and, and working on what you're working on right now? Yeah. Um, well, first, uh, I, I appreciate what um, our, our young leader, Mr. Brown, has to say. And uh, I'm so pleased to see the next generation stepping up. And that's kind of what inspires me today, seeing so many um, young people engaged um, to levels that I've never seen before. Uh, but yeah, the work that I do is, is um, 100% inspired by my values and my beliefs and what I want to fight on. Um, and that's, you know, is born by who I am and my background and my family background. So yeah, I'm the product of a biracial um, uh, uh, family and certainly proud of my roots. And, you know, I, I realized that um, just by the, the complexion that I have that I didn't face um, the same issues that my sister had, for example, you know, and she's we, should, we should say since we're not on video here, um, yeah. Kevin looks pretty fair. <laughs> yeah, I would have been clearly passing back in the day. But uh, as we know, black comes in all different shades. So many of us have cousins or nieces and nephews that, that look, you know, just like me. So I, I, um, I'm, I'm very mindful of the experience that my family went through. I, I go back to my grandfather. My grandfather was born in Louisiana in 1886. I'm only 47. It sounds like a long time ago, 1886. He was born, born during uh, Reconstruction and, uh, you know, grew up there during an era where, you know, the oppressive segregation and the Jim Crow laws and, you know, just um, the, the, the remnants of slavery were, were, were loud and clear. So my grandfather was very brave. And as a young man, as a teenager, he fled. Like so many people did. He fled the South. He fled West. He went to Arizona and California in search of a better life because he saw, you know, what our country did to um, black men and women. And so he had to leave. He had to leave his family and he never went back. And so I always... Um, I'm mindful about about that experience and like you know the, the courage that he had, and uh, you know it it, it uh, certainly had an impact on my my dad, my aunts and uncles, how they were they were raised, and you know I I've heard like all black families in America have heard countless stories and have shared experiences, which lead me to think that we still have a lot of work to do with um, racial justice and inequality in our nation and so you know that led me to 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 pursue a career in public service and it you know helps guide the bills that i'm fighting for today so i have a question about the california's legislative black caucus and i think for many mm -hmm. of us who listen even though we may live around the capital a lot of the how things are done in the capital are still a little fuzzier and clearer. So I was wondering yeah. if you could give us an overview of the caucus, you know, what is its role in the legislature, what it focuses on and sure. it's now uh, uh, during the aftermath of George Floyd's death. 
Yeah. So we have 10 uh, members of the legislature. We have 120 members in the assembly. Mm -hmm. So 10 of the 120, so a little less than 10% are, um, are members of the Black Caucus that are, um, that, that are African-Americans that represent diverse districts. Some of us represent districts that aren't really black. Like my district here in Sacramento is way less than uh, 10% uh, black. We have some members in San Diego. Dr. Weber, who is the chair, his district is like 5% black. Uh, we have some districts in South LA um, that, are, that are more African-American percentage-wise. But let's face it, in California, really don't, we don't really have those heavily concentrated black areas anymore. Even in Oakland, historic areas, uh, South LA, it's, it's very diverse now. So we're, we're elected in districts where we have to represent um, a larger community. That being said, and many of us are products of, of, of our upbringing and our values. So that leads us to, to fight and champion for issues that impact black California. So the issues that frankly that we've been pushing even this year in the era of uh, George Floyd are not new. Um, Frankly, some of the issues are, are the votes have been different now, and that, you know, is amazing and, and to, our, uh, to our benefit that, you know, we had a big vote on affirmative action a few weeks ago. We got 60 votes. You know, two years ago, we could barely count 20 people that would sign their name to this, and we got votes from Democrats and Republicans. And so we have seen a sea change in some of these issues, and I think that what starts earlier, what we talked about about the young people who are showing up. Here in Sacramento, I went to a rally, um, a, a rally for uh, racial justice and police reform just the days after uh, George Floyd, and I saw 50,000 people in my hometown in Sacramento show up at City Hall on a Saturday um, demanding systemic change, and I, I've never seen anything like that before. You know, I, I went to the events after Stefan Clark and, and other, um, you know, we've seen that, you know, after all the, these, these police shootings and injustices are not new. And so we've had, the, you know, these uprisings in California, people demanding change, but this time is different. And we've seen the difference manifest in the attitudes of the people of California, which, which has um, had a correlation to how members of the legislature are voting. So members of us in the Black Caucus who are pushing or have been pushing some of these measures on police reform, uh, racial equality, social justice, um, you know, we're finding that the votes are to our benefit now. Great. So now I want to ask, I want to ask you about the bills. And actually, Xavier, I want you to join me kind of like my co-interviewer, if you have questions too, because um, as, as our Yeah, I actually do have a couple questions. Nice. Okay. Great. So I'm just going to, there's a few here and we're going to list on the podcast, we're going to list the, the bills that we'll talk about. Um, they're AB, they're AB like 11 something, whatever, or AB, ACA five. So we'll list those and we're going to talk more in detail so that they're not just numbers, that there's a little more background about the, the bills. So first off, Kevin, I wanted to ask you about a bill that that's specifically yours. Uh, it is AB 2917 and um, it's I guess the, the quick uh, description is it would require the California Department of Justice to review policies regarding use of deadly force at law enforcement agencies and then make re recommendations to requesting departments. Uh, so mm -hmm. I, if you could just give a little more specific about that, uh, what, what would the process of that look like? What, what change do you think that would ultimately result in? So that's my question. Yeah, well, I think that's such a fluid issue. That bill, that number isn't, isn't relevant anymore. So the bill now is 1506. 
and it's the it's the Deadly Force Accountability Act. So it's it's twofold. It's one, it's to have independent investigations on use of deadly force. So think of Stefan Clark. By the way, it's not always officer-involved shootings. Because think of George Floyd. There was not a gun involved there, right? And there was an incident of deadly force and. Many times when the DAs do the investigation, it's essentially the police policing themselves. There is a, there's a conflict of interest, total perceived conflict of interest from the community. Um, there have been five or so states that have made this reform throughout our nation to have uh, a state attorney general, for example, uh, do the investigation in those. And so this bill would have independent investigations for these instances of deadly force. I've tried this a number of times um, over the years. This is my third attempt with legislation. I think this time is different. I have nearly 50 joint authors with me um, on that. And so I think it's One time- five or five zero? Five zero. Wow. Five zero. So yeah, this is clearly an issue in the George Floyd era. It, people are taking a second look at this issue. Um, so yeah, th th that that's a big bill. Um, but it's one of um, nearly a dozen that we're pushing this year. And and there was another one also, it seemed like along those lines, uh, AB 1185, something uh, similar with sheriff's departments. It, allow, it would allow county governments to expand oversight of sheriff's departments through civilian re review boards and even uh, create a, an inspector general. I know in, Sac in the city of Sacramento, our mayor, uh, Daryl Steinberg, and I believe city council voted on putting an inspector general in place. Um, my question, and then I'm gonna let Xavier, if he has questions, ask. Uh, in terms of like uh, oversight and review boards, you know, um, some people may see like, that sounds like more bureaucracy, more layers, you know, does that lead to concrete concrete change and progress? So I'm just wondering, you know, what's, what's your take on that, adding more levels? Yeah, well, my first bill, 1506, is about accountability. It, it, when an officer, if and when an officer does cross the line and use unnecessary force and sometimes deadly force, should that officer be, be held accountable? And um, I think the answer is yes. And we don't always have a fair process to investigate it. But we also need to look at the, in California as a whole, how do we prevent these in the first place? How do we prevent cops from going rogue and doing inappropriate stuff, whether they're, whether they're patrolling the streets, responding to a call, or many times the sheriff's departments in the county jail? And so if you look at how much money we pay out every year in these settlements, you know, it's millions and tens of millions of dollars that these are monies that could go to schools. And so we're working on transparency for those as well. But a big part of it is oversight of sheriff's departments throughout California. You know, sheriffs are a unique thing going back to old English rule 100 years ago. We elect these sheriffs countywide. And many times the sheriffs think the accountability is the election every four years. And so there are counties up and down the state that have created these oversight bodies. Some have it a, a committee, a commission that have been appointed by the Board of Supervisors or the, or the electorate created one. Some have these um, individuals who are inspector generals, like a one-person shop. But many times the sheriffs say, you know what, I'm going I'm to hard pass. I'm not going to give the information that you're receiving. So that just um, allows the sheriff to thumb their nose at oversight and accountability and who's left holding the bag many times is the taxpayers paying out all these settlements and so forth. So our bill would simply say that if a county creates one of these oversight bodies, uh, the sheriff can't ignore it. And it would give subpoena power to get, gather information that they're trying to 
receive to make recommendations, um, you know, to give policy um, options, uh, you know, for the county. And so it's really a good government transparency uh, issue. Uh, many cities already do this with police departments, but sheriffs, unfortunately, have gotten a pass over the number of years. And some sheriffs, like here in Sacramento and L.A., they've totally ignored this. Um, example here in Sacramento, the sheriff didn't like the inspector general. Who, and this person wasn't like, a, like an academic who was thinking or an ACLU lawyer or something, not, nothing wrong with those two people, but this individual is our former police chief of Sacramento, a decorated expert in de-escalation, deadly force. He was our inspector general, and he was providing recommendations, analysis, and our sheriff didn't like that. And he literally changed the lock of the door and changed, the, changed his ID so he couldn't go to work. And so this, would, this bill would stop that activity. Xavier, do you have any questions uh, about those two bills or anything along the lines of police reform? Um, yes. So for one, I, um, I, I just want to say thank you to uh, Mr. Uh, uh, McCarty because it's very rare that you see, you know, people actually in um, a government that is trying to make changes from within. So I um, really appreciate his work in, in doing so. Um, in terms of police reform, um, you were talking about a, um, the Ac Accountability Act, um, where like um, the, uh, a deadly uh, a, a force. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to ask, um, how would that work out in terms of like after they've already you know um applied deadly force then with this act um they will be able to investigate harshly on it or will it be in terms of actually preventing that deadly um of a, a, a force to happen in, 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 in the first place. Yeah, I, I think there's a few sense. things, that, not to complicate things, but as part of that bill, 1506, the Deadly Force Accountability Act, we have one piece of the bill that tries to prevent these in the first place. We have the Attorney General's office could do these audits and analysis of police departments to give them recommendations on best practices. Like in the Stefan Clark one, did they properly use de-escalation? Um, you know, there is a rule about when someone's fleeing into a backyard, do you go and, and no one is at risk per se? Do you, do you, do you have a perimeter and send in the, the canine patrol and have a helicopter to do other options as opposed to going in and, you know, um, with firearms and, and, you know, of course, an unnecessarily, an unnecessarily death occurred there with Stefan Clark. But also about um, accountability when an officer does cross the line. So what our bill would say is that as opposed to the local DA doing the investigation, and the district attorney just has these inherent conflicts of interest because they, when they run for office, how do they get elected? They get the local police union, the sheriff, to endorse them. And then when they go and investigate these same people three or four months later, it's super hard because they have this political pressure. And so having the attorney general with an outside um, investigators who are removed uh, locally, uh, they could bring a little bit of um, independence and transparency to the process. So 
it's um, it's clearly uh, not a perfect solution. Some some would argue that we should have even more independence and we should have these for every shooting. But I think it's a great improvement over the current system. And under my under my proposal, it wouldn't be every incident of deadly force. It would be the ones where either the local entity, the local DA, uh, ask for it from the attorney general. Which in the last few weeks there have been three or four. Um, local communities that have asked the attorney general to do an investigation, the attorney general had said no. And so our bill would, would make that mandatory where if a request is, is put forward, it would have to be accepted by the Department of Justice and the attorney general's office. Okay, so in the instances where the police do use deadly force, um, and you said that not every one of them would, would be investigated are you talking about the ones that um may be deemed justified like well they would all be investigated but not okay. all of them would be asked to be investigated by the attorney general under current law they're investigated by the local police department and the local da and the da makes recommendations should there be you know a, a charge against the officer for right. excessive force or abusing force and so that currently would happen but under my bill, under some of these high-profile incidents where there is a community outcry or that the, the fact pattern just clearly shows that we need you know, a different perspective, there'd be an option for the, the local agency to say, you know what, let's have the State Department of Justice led by our Attorney General, Javier Becerra, let's have them come in and do the investigation. Right. Okay. All right. Hi, this is Caleb Clark, executive producer of California Groundbreakers Podcasts. We're working on more New Normal in California podcasts literally as I speak, but putting them together takes a fair amount of time and money. If you like what you're hearing in this episode and you want to hear more of them, you can help us in two ways. First, consider being a Groundbreakers supporter right now by making a podcast creation donation. Click on the Support California Groundbreakers box on our SoundCloud podcast hub page or on the Donate tab of the homepage of our website, californiagroundbreakers.org. Great. There's a couple of other bills I wanted to ask about that I sure. uh, thought were really uh, pertain to uh, colleges and universities in California. And uh, that's one reason I, I thought Xavier would be a good person to have on this conversation since you are a California college uh, student. So the first one actually, I guess now is on the ballot uh, that we're going to be voting on in in November. Uh, I think it was uh, introduced as ACA 5, and that's the Affirmative Action Proposal. And that would repeal a proposition passed back in 1996 when I was about ready to start uh, applying to colleges. And that barred a state government from considering race, ethnicity, and, and sex for education and public employment and I feel like, I'm not sure if this is a direct result, but I think I keep reading how, based on that proposition passed back in 1996, um, uh, diversity in, in UC schools, um, maybe in, I'm not sure about Cal State, has, has decreased. It, it, it didn't get what it was um, going for in terms of equality. It just kind of just uh, made it a little more uh, inequitable in terms of diversity. Um, so now this would repeal that, ACA 5 or whatever, the proposition on the, on the ballot, which you'll tell, tell us, uh, Kevin. How do you see uh, that uh, improving equity and opportunity for, for college students, for businesses in California? 
Well, I think that there's this perception too that California is, is an unwelcome place for, for a lot of students of color, especially African-Americans. A lot of qualified African-Americans, sometimes they leave the UC system. You know, they go to historically black colleges in the South or they, you know, go out of state because California has this, um, you know, this legacy of, of Prop 209. And the electorates change a lot in the last 25 years. This was put on the ballot by a governor. Let's make no mistake. He was running for president. He was looking at wedge politics and dividing people based upon race, ethnicity. It sounds very familiar with our current political climate with, with, our, with our president, frankly. But at the time, our governor wanted to divide California, and so he had Prop 187, you know, focusing on immigration a couple years earlier in 94, and then 96, it was affirmative action. And so looking to, to, to create an opportunity to springboard himself, and we've dealt with the aftermath for, you know, 25 years now, and it's exasperated, um, you know, uh, uh, equity in education. And it's not necessarily... Um, a quota per se, because quotas are illegal. This just allows a race to be a consideration in higher education, and sometimes it's not even admissions, it's programs. What if there's outreach programs or specific programs to help African-American students or Latino students uh, navigate the college process? You can't use that as a consideration in your public policy because 209 prohibits that. Um, what if we want to recruit more um, black school teachers, right? Right now, that's a big issue. Some of the, some of our brown and black communities, some of the young black kids never see, they've never even seen an African-American male teacher. And so we can't have specific programs that work on that because 209 barred that. Uh, so I think it's going to have a big impact on looking at the equity lens. We're trying to achieve some of these issues that we're, we've been fighting for in California with education. So Xavier is a college student right now. I was wondering, you know, what you think, what's that proposition going to, what number is it, uh, Kevin? Do you know, has it been assigned it's, a number? Um, 16. Prop 16. So in terms of that, uh, bringing affirmative action uh, back, um, as a college student, Xavier, how do you uh, think about that? And I'll ask this, uh, being a Latina, I, I kind of got some jokes about when I was applying for college, oh, you'll be fine because affirmative action will, will help you out and you'll get, uh, you'll get into the colleges based on, on that. So don't worry so much. And I thought, but wait a minute, I don't want that to be the reason why I'm, I'm picked. Um, uh, but you know, that, that's what happened back in the day for me. I was just wondering for you when you're, you know, you're at uh, UCLA and on campus and you know, as a college student, uh, would that be a good thing? Would it, would it, would it help greatly? Would it not help? What's your thoughts about bringing that back onto for, for prospective college students? So I'll, I'll, I'll say this. Um, at UCLA, um, we have about uh, a little over 4% uh, black um, a, a, a population. And more than half of that is are um, the athletes. So there's not that many people just going to UCLA um, for academics. And um, in terms of why that is, I know that a lot of my friends didn't apply to UCs because for one, they believed that, well, they knew that the black population there was extremely small. So they wanted to go to a place where you know, they it 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 had more of a a black a, 
of population while still, um, you know, um, being a good school, such as Howard, Morehouse. Mind you, these are all out-of-state colleges with higher tuitions, but they wanted to be around that environment, and I don't blame them. With affirmative action, it would reverse that, you know. It would have a chance for more Black people to be at, at, the, at these colleges, but yes, um, uh, Vanessa, as you said, that new stigma will arise, that the only reason why you're here is because of the color of your skin. Um, and um, even, even I have uh, gotten that a few times. Um, when I got into the acting program at UCLA, the acting program at UCLA is in the top four program, no, top five programs in the a country for acting. Um, and the other program that I got into was a Syracuse, which is also in, in the a, a top five. But what a lot of people, not a lot, but what some people were saying like, oh, that's only because they're trying to make it more diverse. And you were like the one like, you know, like black kid that was able to get in. And it, it, I think what we have to do is have, a, have affirmative action be in a way where you look past the race because this was, was a stigma that it is now is that let's say there's like a white kid with like, let's say a, a 3.9 and a black kid with, with, with like a, 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 a 3.8 because that 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 kid's black and you know because of um you know of, of affirmative action let's admit the black kid to see how he does i think what needs to happen is when you see these applicants that are very well rounded i think you should truly take into account um how, like what what they grew, grew up in because I'm telling you right now, a black kid with a 3.8 versus a white kid with a 3.9, the black kid coming from underfunded schools, underfunded programs, and the white kid, you know, growing up in a wealthy neighborhood. In my in my opinion, the fact that the black kid got that far with this, with a 3.8 is more impressive, you know. So I think that we also need to take into consideration the backgrounds that these people are coming from not 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 just looking at it you know straight on you know with grades and extracurriculars but also take into account like hey this kid is from this area let's see how this area is doing wow he's one of the only ones that is actually doing pretty well for for that area let's give him a chance you know what i mean so i think that it should be there, 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 there should be more to taken in, into consideration, and maybe that is. I don't know, but um, yeah, and so yeah, I, 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 I think that unfortunately there will be that um, a stigma of oh, you only got in because uh, you're you're black or you're uh, a, a a Latinx, um, but at the same time, I think that we have to. You erase that and encourage more uh, my 
minorities to apply, even though they might be, you know, one of the only ones there. So. Yeah, there, there's the pros and the cons. And um, Kevin, I don't know if you know this, but is there any is there any thought about you know if the if the measure passes uh, Prop 16 um, for schools anyway? Is that something that you know that they would uh, say, yeah, we should we should consider that you know backgrounds, not just grades and numbers. Or is there something that would be in the proposition that would uh, you know make it so that it wouldn't be just uh, you know what Xavier and I were saying about, you know, oh, just affirmative action. It's more like, you know, the whole the whole background of somebody should come into play. Does that make sense? I don't even know if that's something that you can that you can focus on because that's uh education, but thoughts on that? No, no, no. I, I yeah, and, and in my committee, the capital, I chair the budget committee overseeing higher ed funding. So I've i done I've done a lot in the in the um, admissions issue. For UC, so after Prop 209, UC has done a lot of actually good work in changing their admissions. They have this comprehensive review where they look about if you're the first in your family to go to college and your your background. So they do look at other issues, but they can't use race as a consideration because of of 209. And quotas are illegal anyway. So in reality, there's going to be limited impact that this would is going to have in admissions. I think that it's going to um, get rid of this um, black eye we've had in California for so long. So, so many, as um, Xavier said, so many um, qualified and talented black students today, they're like, why, 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 why do I want to go there? I feel like unwelcome there. So I think we'll be able to get rid of that. But it's going to be able to help us shape policies, not just on admissions, but how you have uh, retention programs and, and how you can do um, recruitment. And, you know, um, how you do faculty hiring, right? That's a big issue too. You know, look at our, our, our faculty throughout the UC, CSU, and our community colleges. They're not always really diverse. That's a big issue. And so it'll help us focusing on faculty hiring. So, but on, on the actual admissions, it probably won't have that much of an impact. Um, I know the opposition is going to use that. They're going to exploit that. But, you know, reality check that uh, the law is the law. We've already had Supreme Court decisions that focus on quotas and say those are illegal. So uh, we know the truth there. Yeah, there's one in particular, and then you could, I guess, just basically about um, parole, probation and parole. I know there was one that it sounds like it's getting on the ballot, but one that sounded interesting, at least to me, was uh, Assembly Bill 2342, an overview letting parolees reduce their parole time by earning credits for education, training, and treatment programs. So. I know a couple of people um, who said it has been hard um, after leaving prison, doing ter their term, getting back into uh, the community, getting a job, you know, uh, um, you know, getting uh, credit and uh, an apartment or a house or a place to live. There's just this, these marks and, uh, you know, getting back on their feet. So that one, AB 2342, sounded interesting to me because it sounds like there is this that sounds like a method for, you know, um, education, training, treatment programs, and and getting help so that you can, you know, get a good start when you're when you're back um, mm -hmm. out in the world. Yeah. So I, I think um, we all get it in California. We've had this crazy um, prison drive for the last thirty years. We've built dozens of prisons and you know only one or two universities, and so we're, we've been dealing with the aftermath of that. And so we have been changing some of our policies and sentencing reform 
which is which is good. It's not positive. But one thing I think is really needed is how we help reintegrate people back into society once they have served their time in the prison system. And so that means um, housing, employment, it means voting rights. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I've been working on a lot of these for the past few years. And, and two bills I'm working on this year, one, we're calling it a reintegration credit. So it's common sense that if you're, if you're, if you're in, um, in prison, if you're incarcerated, you can sometimes earn time for good behavior. Right, we've all heard that phrase. You get behavior, you can get some years off your sentence. Well, we don't have the same thing once you're on parole. So if you're on parole, you essentially have this um, scarlet letter hanging around you where you can't travel more than 50 miles. If you do get a job, you can't go work outside of the area. So the notion we have is if you're on parole and you go to college and you're a student, you're really unlikely to go back. You know, recidivism really doesn't focus on people that are in college. And so our bill says if you go to college for a semester, you get a you get a semester off of your parole, essentially six months. Or if you do volunteer work through an organization that your parole officer um, okay's, you can get time off of your parole through volunteer work. And so that helps reintegrate people back to into society, and it gives the parole agents, I think, a break too, so they can focus on the people who need their attention. Um, so that's going through the process, and we have great support. We had 65 votes on that bill. And frankly, the whole George Floyd issue, uh, two years ago, I didn't, get, I didn't get 40 votes on that bill. So things have changed. We're looking at things differently. I also have another measure that's going to be on the ballot that you can vote for, Prop 17, which would restore voting rights. So right now, when you're on probation, you can vote. But when you're on parole, you can't vote. There's a lot of confusion about who can and can't vote. And there have been a number of states across the nation Democrat states, Republican states that have made this change in the last couple of years. So this would be on the ballot and we would um, change because right now who gets to vote is locked in the state constitution. So in order to make the change, we've got to go back to the voters. That's going to be on the ballot this November, Prop 17, to restore uh, voting rights for the formerly incarcerated. Um, I had a quick question J just to... Um just to clarify, are you saying that if you are on parole and you attend a semester of college, then you get that time off of parole or you get like um, uh, additional time off of parole because you have attended college? I was a bit confused. On that. Yeah, no, you, you get a credit. So if you go to college for a semester, you get six months off your parole. You go to college for a year, you get a year off of your parole. So it really okay. rewards people when they, when they get out to go to college because one, we know it's going to help them. It's going to help them get a better job and, and uh, get back acclimated in the community. Um, we know it's, they're probably going to be very unlikely to, to go back and be a statistic for recidivism. And so we should reward that individual by giving them uh, time off their parole. So it, it's a win-win for California. So the length of time that they are in college is equal to the length of time that's taken off uh, exactly. parole. Okay. Great. All right. Another bill that I wanted to ask about, I, I think, I don't know, I feel like this is going to be a contentious one, um, is, the, is mm -hmm. reparations, AB 3121. It looks like it's create a reparations task force 
to educate Californians about slavery and recommend ways the state can, and I'm quoting you, Kevin, uh, I think from a Capital Public Radio or maybe the, the uh, press conference where this was uh, discussed, uh, quote, can help remedy generations impacted with inequality and discrimination. Yes. So um, first I want to ask you about this, Kevin, and then Xavier, yeah. your, your thoughts. If, if this passed, how would the process work? You know, the Corporations Task Force is created, you know, what's a process? What do you see some outcomes? And um, whether it passes or not, what do you think California residents should do? This question's for both of you, whether it passes or not. What do you think California residents should do to remedy for inequality and discrimination? Yeah. So, Kevin, well, I think to- big picture, this is an important conversation we need to have. Um, you know, the first uh, slave ship arrived at Jamestown 401 years ago, and the impact is still, you know, alive and well today. And, and frankly, I would say part of the reparations conversation is Prop 16, affirmative action. So that's one thing that we can do right now to realize that we do still have real racial inequality in our nation and in California. But with this reparations bill, it, it won't create reparation payments right away. Um, it'll start the conversation as far as what, what would that look like. If you think about reparations and last hundred years ago for people that were Japanese Americans that were sent away during, you know, 50, 60 years ago. And so it was easier to pinpoint who those individuals were or their direct or their, or their, or their kids, right? Now we're talking 400 years. So how do you define descendants and how do you, there's a lot of logistics that we need to work out. And we, we, we recognize that, but this is an issue that I think our nation needs to get a, a hold of. And we need to, frankly, have our state talking about it as well. So this will set up a task force to evaluate what that would look like, what kind of policies that we could implement that, that deal with the multi-generational impact on, um, on, on slavery and how we still have. If you look at the issues in our society, like homeless, you go to our local um, homeless encampment here on the street or even do the counts, uh, black Sacramentans are less than 10% of the population, sometimes make up 40% of the homeless population. You look at our population in our prison system, you know, we're always, um, you know, worse on the list when it comes to those things. So the impacts are alive and well today. And so I think this kind of manifests the reality that we're seeing and all these issues across public policy and focuses on um, what can be done to address those. And look at families who, uh, who, who have, um, you know, Wealth, um, you know, uh, you know, saved up monies in their bank accounts, you know, generation to generation, and so you know these issues are alive and well, and this puts California on the map and, and tapping them head on. In terms of who would be on the reparations task force, do you have thoughts about who would be asked or who should be on there? I think that's uh, too early to, to, to tell who would be on there. I know the, the bill would set up a process and it would have, you know, the governor and the legislature, um, you know, launch into that. But I think that's too early at this point. Xavier, what do you think about uh, AB 3121? I mean, um, in terms of... And, and whether or not it passes or not. In terms of the re-education process, um, I think that that is phenomenal in, t- in terms of, you know, trying to re-educate 
Californians on, on you know, what slavery actually is because we don't learn enough about it in, in school. We just, we, 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 we just don't. A lot of what I know about black history and taught to me at, at UCLA because I took a course on, 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 on black history or I researched it on my own. So um, I think that's great, not only for, you know, people that aren't black, but if uh, people that are black, it's, 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 it's hard for a black person. We learn about other people's history, but we never learn about our own. So I think it's, um, I, th I think it's great in terms of re, educating and i think it was interesting what mr mccarty said about um you know how it was easier uh to do reparations for the um japanese uh internment camps right mm -hmm. well correct um simply because of how recent it was and it's a and it's a shame but it's 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 true it's 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 a shame that it had to, you know, um, be that way. And it's, and it's a shame that we couldn't have given reparations to the people who had, had needed it and made sure that they kept it in their family um, in the late 1800s because a lot of land was given to slaves. It's just that it was a, a stolen away. So. You know, it's, it's, he, he, he's, he's right. I never thought about it like that in terms of it's hard to track, um, you know, what families actually, uh, 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 needed. But I think that in doing this act, I think that it will, without a doubt, be a step forward in the right, um, a direction, but even going, um, even going even more forward, I know that, you know, there's tons of counties in the South that have records of slaves. So in terms of tracking those families down, I think that that would be doable. And I know that, you know, that it doesn't really apply to uh, California right now. You know, I'm just saying in general, I think that that would be the um, next step. One thing that Xavier, you brought up about, uh, taking a class um, in black history. Uh, there was a bill that I, we don't have time to get to, um, but I did want to mention it. Uh, I thought it was also interesting, uh, Assembly Bill 1460, and that would require California State University mm -hmm. campuses, I guess not UC, but California State, to provide ethnic studies courses and make it a graduation requirement. And that would begin with the class of 2024. So that is something on the... Uh, on the list for the legislature to, to vote on. Um, so that's one thing. Um, but not for UC, only for, for Cal State. Is that correct, Kevin? Correct, correct. Uh, UC, okay. you know, they're, they're on their own in the state constitution. So and I, I, that's a huge issue. That you, if you think about, you know, what's happening in our society and the lack of conversation as far as what Juneteenth is and, and just... Um, you know, right. racial inclusion and having the rest of California understanding, you know, the black experience, you know, the immigrant experience of, you know, Latino farm workers and Mexican Americans who have 
impacted California for generations. Having that as part of our school system, you know, you fight uh, intolerance with education. So I think that is a huge thing that we're not always talking about. And there's two bills. There's one to have ethnic studies in high school going through the process, and there's one at the CSU level. So hopefully we're going to get both those bills passed this year. So I wanted to wrap this up by, I've, I've asked my questions, but I wanted to see if uh, each of you had a question or a couple of questions for each other. Um, and so, Xavier, I wanted to start with you and see if you had any questions that, you know, of your own for uh, Assembly Member Kevin McCarty. Um, yeah, I mean, in terms of the bills that we talked about, I think we talked a lot uh, uh, about that, but I have two small questions that I feel like um, you, you, you can answer quickly, hopefully. Um, for one, how, like, like what, what inspired you to be like, okay, I want to make the change from within because that's not, a, that's, that's not a huge thing that you hear in the black um, community. And two, what is like your dream goal? Like, you know, like if this happens, then, you know, like, like, like this, like one thing that you're working towards, if that makes sense. I don't know if that yeah. makes sense. Well, I think that the driver is to, um, you know, make a positive difference. You asked earlier how I got into this. I, I stumbled into politics. I wasn't a student government leader or anything. Um, debate or anything. I, I had a lackluster high school career and you know, diploma after graduation and went through community college. And then I was inspired when I was in community college to get involved in, in politics and public service because, as I talked about earlier, I saw how government policies um, help people and held people back, you know, held back, you know, people of color in this generation and this society. And so I, I saw the injustice right away, and I also realized how it, it could help people. My mom was a single mom and benefited from after-school programs and childcare for us and, and financial aid for her to go get a, a degree and a career. So I saw how government can help. And so, you know, I'm a big believer in that. And so that's what inspired me um, to, to get involved in public service and essentially put my name on the ballot one day and get elected where I'm at today. Um, I don't have one, one or two things that I'm looking to do and then, you know, hang it up. There's so much to, to accomplish, but, you know, I, I still see that, that this uh, society, there's so many people that are left behind. We look at the uh, education inequality and just wealth disparities and, um, you know, we look about environmental issues and environmental injustice in certain neighborhoods have, you know, have more impacts on, on them than others. And so, you know, those issues are what drive me, and there's not one or two policies that it would be done that would make it over, but, but advancement on all those things is my continued, my continued quest, and I think that there's a lot of work to be done, and I'm super excited to be in the mix in California. You know, we're all riveted last week or so talking about Hamilton and that, and so being the capital, that's the room where it happens, where we can make a positive change and impact people's lives throughout California. So but that's why I do what I do. And, and um, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm very optimistic that we'll be able to make significant change this year. And then, you know, we'll keep at it in the years to come. But thank you. So Kevin, I was wondering if you have any last questions for Xavier. 
Yeah, you know, Xavier, um, what inspires you and uh, what makes you optimistic about the future and people your generation? Well, um, I, I would say um, in terms of um, inspiring me, I would say how I was brought up and how my peers have been brought up. So me personally, I was privileged um, enough that my parents took education very seriously. So um, even when it was hard for them to, they tried to have me go to private school as much as possible. I also went to a, a, a public school during the uh, recession, but anytime that they could, you know, they wanted me to go to um, private school to really get that education. And, and it's the same thing with my um, up, up peers who I grew up with who are also black. Um, and just seeing how that has impacted us, the fact that, you know, um, like me and my three friends that I've known since I was four years old, you know, was able to come together and lead a protest and educate and try to educate others with what we were saying. I think that really shows something about how much education can imp impact somebody. Mm -hmm. And I think that something that inspires me is trying to make sure everyone in this country, you know, no matter what race you are, um, but es especially for the black community to get a good education, to, 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 to make sure that they're um, edu edu educated well. And also educated in a way that helps them, because not everyone learns the same way. So, I think that that's what truly inspires me. Um, and then, of course, in terms of acting and film, um, you know, whenever I see Spike Lee or, or Denzel Washington, um, uh, like just 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 prominent black figures in the film industry that are truly telling like non-stereotypical black stories that really inspires me to do what I want to do in the film industry um, and I and I have a lot of hope for the, the youth because you know I, 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 as you can see as uh, Vanessa said you know like the youth are um, are was standing up for what they believe in at a younger age, even at 16 years old. So um, it's, uh, I'm, I'm pretty hopeful. Excellent. I have a quick question for you, Xavier, following up on that actually. Because um, you had mentioned before we started recording that uh, you're going to go meet with the DA mm -hmm. uh, in Oakland, right? And, and you're, you're being more active. Like this March just seems to be the first of many things. Would you consider maybe running for office? I think someone at the Wall Street Journal mentioned that you should yeah. run for office. Uh, something that, especially now, talking with a, an assembly member, is that more interesting to you? More of, of, of some appeal? I mean, it's always been interesting to me, without a doubt. And um, you know, I don't know what the future holds, um, but I would want to accomplish my goals in film and bringing light to black film more first um, 
So if I were ever, if I were ever to get into a, a, a politics or education, I think it would be um, later on in, in well, my life. Well, in the legislature, we have people that are teachers and professors and police officers and former staff members. We've never, I've never had a filmmaker. So, but we we have <laughs> childcare providers. We have everybody. So. We've had two actors as governor, so <laughs> <That's true. laughs> California, it, it, could it could happen, happen here. here. Right. Yeah. I, I want to say thank you very much, uh, Xavier Brown and Kevin McCarty, for taking the time and, uh, and having this great conversation with us and with each other. And, um, and yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens with the bills. We'll be voting on Prop 16 and 17, among others. And uh, we will see what systemic change looks like going forward. So thanks again for talking with us about that. Thank you. Thanks for having me. But thank you. You've been listening to California Groundbreakers. This conversation with Xavier Brown and State Assembly member Kevin McCarty about proposed laws to make systemic change was recorded on July 14, 2020. Thanks to both men for taking time to talk with us. Thanks also to Sacramento police officer Fillmore Graham, also known as Israel Graham, for letting us use his song, Be the Difference, that you're hearing for this podcast. Always thanks to Caleb Clark at Kickstart Audio for recording and producing all of our podcasts. And of course, thanks to you for listening. If you find our podcasts worth listening to in these difficult times, consider making a donation and supporting our efforts to produce more informative, inspiring conversations about how Californians are coping and keeping things going. You can do that as well as keep tabs on upcoming podcast episodes and other information about us by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.